0: Our scripture this morning comes out of the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. If you're joining with us online, uh, you're invited to, uh, to follow along in your own Bibles, or here, if you're here in person, you can follow along in your own Bibles or there on a phone app as well. Again, Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through uh, 11. On one occasion while the crowd was press, pressing in on him to hear the word of god he was standing by the lake of gennesaret and he saw two boats by the lake but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets getting into one of the boats which was which was simon's he asked him to put out a little from the land and jesus sat and taught the people from the boat and when he had finished speaking he said to simon But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, "'Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord.' For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, "'Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men.' And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Almighty God, pour out your spirit upon this, your word, and make it be for us the the word of life that we might be people of life. And now, God, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of all of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O God, our Redeemer. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. One of my very first memories of life is fishing. It's the craziest thing ever. One of my very first memories of of being alive was going fishing with my mom. Now, I don't really remember my mom ever particularly liking to fish. I don't really… Uh, I don't really necessarily remember fishing with her hardly ever again but I remember it was when my older siblings they were all in school and so it was before I started school I would have been three or four years old and my mom for some reason more than likely uh, she was just trying to get me out of the house for that day but more than likely she took uh, whatever the case she took me fishing and it was at our primary uh, farm pond that we have on, our, on my family's farm and ranch. And we, um, we went fishing that day. I remember we had Vin- Vienna sausages for lunch, and we, we actually caught a fish. I don't remember if my mom caught it or, or if I caught it. My guess is my mom caught it and let me, let me reel it in. I remember her saying that it was a sunfish. I'm not exactly sure what that was. I, th- I think it was probably a perch. And so one of my very first, I mean, it really is my, my very first memory of life was going fishing with my mom. I, 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 throughout this past week, I've been thinking about this passage of Scripture, and I've realized that fishing has become, has been a part of my life for my entire life. I grew up fishing. I, 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 um, when, my, when I had children, I took them to, guess what, that exact same pond, and I taught them how to fish. And both of my kids have, have a love of fishing. I've gone, I have I, gone fishing in the Gulf of Mexico a number of times. I've gone out 15 or 20 miles out into the Gulf of Mexico, and I've, I've caught lots and lots and lots of, of big fish in the, in the Gulf of Mexico. I've, I've done all kinds of fishing all kinds of fishing about seven or eight years ago I started fly fishing and uh, for trout and it is it is really renewed my joy of fishing I, I, I absolutely love fly fishing for trout um, I've I've done again line fishing. I've done trot line fishing. I've I've gone out and I've set out jugs. I've used stink bait. I've used I've used grasshoppers and and, uh, and lures and all kinds all kinds of things. I I absolutely I absolutely love fishing. And so this story really, really speaks to my heart and to my soul. Now, I, I, I love to fish. I love to fish, but I can't imagine be, being a professional fisherman. I absolutely cannot imagine being a professional fisherman. Being a professional fisherman is way different than fishing than fishing for pleasure. Now, this story today, as, as, as I talked about, we, we are, we, I mean, the, the felt board is a is an an incredible way to tell stories. And so we're, early on in January and February, I used the felt board to tell some of the great stories of the Old Testament. These were children's stories, but we saw that these children's stories, they they have very adult themes oftentimes. These stories that we learned when we were small children, they have deep and profound theological meaning. And I would say the same thing when it comes to the felt board stories of Jesus. These stories that often we view as, as children's stories, they seem to be very, very simplistic, simplistic but they are, there are some incredible theological meaning for, for us for us today. And so today we're going to be begin by examining this story of the calling of those of those first disciples. Now, now this takes place on the on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, many of you have been uh, to Israel, and you have been to the Sea of Galilee. It's referred to as the Sea of Galilee, or. Um, um, good Dr. Luke, in Luke's gospel, Luke never does call it a sea. I find that fascinating. Many scholars believe that Luke was a little bit more well traveled than the other disciples, and um, it certainly would not be considered a sea by today's standard. It is almost identical in size uh, to Grand Lake. Now, it's obviously shaped very differently. Grand Lake is pretty narrow and it really um, really follows that, the Grand River. Uh, but the Sea of Galilee is around 13 and a half miles at its widest point, is 13 and a half miles uh, north and south by seven and a half miles east and west. And it is an arid area around there. It begins the, um, it's at the very top of the Jordan River Valley. And so um, it's pretty fertile around around the Sea of Galilee. Uh, during the time of Jesus, it was pretty populated as well. There were uh, there were nine or ten uh, villages or cities around the Sea of Galilee. Today, there is only one bigger uh, bigger village. Uh, Tiberius is the name. Of that of that small village there on the Sea of Galilee today, and so you can see on one side of the Sea of Galilee, it is um, it, it is quite fertile. On the other side, it really is surrounded by mountains. Uh, especially on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, it is surrounded by uh, surrounded by these pretty tall mountains. They're very arid mountains, and the and the air will come up over um, over that. Those mountains on the eastern shore, and that air will will really heat as it comes over that very very uh, arid um, mountain range, and then it'll come over the the cooled water of the Sea of Galilee, and on this lake, although it's relatively small, there oftentimes are are very dramatic storms, uh, very dangerous storms in the Sea of Galilee, and we find those stories in the New Testament, and so we have. Um, You can see here on this map that in the Sea of Galilee, it it is at the very top of the the Jordan River Valley. And the Sea of Galilee is about 200 feet below sea level. It's one of the the few lakes or one of the few bodies of water that we have in the world that is below sea level. But that, that river valley goes even deeper from there. And this really, again, the, the Sea of Galilee really is, the ver- is, is one of the centers of, of the New Testament, one of the centers of the, the ministry of Jesus. And so that Jordan River Valley goes straight through it, and we find the Jordan River oftentimes in Scripture. There are lots of things that happen at the Jordan River, not just in the New Testament, but also in the, in the Old Testament. And it flows down into the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is 1,400 feet below sea level. Uh, it is the saltiest uh, it's saltiest body of water on Earth, and uh, the, bottom of, uh, the bottom of the bottom of the Dead Sea is the lowest point on landmass, and we would call the, we would consider that in in a landmass. The only other points that are deeper uh, on the Earth are out in the middle of the ocean. And so, um, I, again, I have not been to the Sea of Galilee, but I've heard it's an incredibly, incredibly beautiful, beautiful area. It is, again, one of the very few areas that, that you really can um, have farming. Uh, they irrigate a lot, and they always have irrigated a lot out of the Sea, out of, the sea of Galilee. Um, so, who were, so so who, who were these guys that Jesus began to call, and he walked by and he saw them he saw them fishing. By the way, this story is told also in Matthew, Matthew and Luke tells the story. and there are a, a couple of differences about whether um, Simon and Andrew or Peter and Andrew were actually partners with James and John here in Luke's Gospel. that implies that they're partners with them. At the very least, they were they were very good friends. Uh, there's a, a few differences as well. Again, they're just told from different perspectives, um, as as two different newspaper reporters would would report on the same story just a little bit differently. That's what we have in the Gospel of Matthew, and it also in the Gospel in the Gospel of Luke, and so. Um, on this Sea of Galilee, again, around the size of Grand Lake, if you can kinda, kinda grab, kinda picture that in your mind. At one time, at one time, Josephus, an ancient historian, said there was a fleet of boats, of 240 boats, uh, fishing boats, on the Sea of Galilee. Now, again, I I know, I know the Lippols have been to Grand Lake quite a few, quite a few times, and, and many of us have been to a lake and 240 boats on Grand Lake would—I mean, it would not be—I mean, it would be a busy day on the on the on the uh, on the lake for sure. Now, if it was a if it was one round one round body of water, and you could actually see on any other, on any point on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, you can see the other shore. You can pretty much stand at the at the side of the Sea of Galilee and see the entire lake. So, 240 fishing boats. On the Sea of Galilee was a whole bunch of boats, a whole bunch of boats. There were a number of different ways that they uh, that they fished uh, on the Sea of Galilee, and we'll get that. We'll get to that just in a moment. So, who were these guys? Who was this Simon and his brother Andrew, uh, and uh, or his friend Andrew, and and then their friends James and John, who were who were brothers? Who were these guys? Who were these guys? Well, they were they were rough-and-tumble kind of, uh, kind of guys. Uh, Have, have you ever met any sailors? (laughs) Uh, My guess is that Peter and Andrew and James and John, uh, they talk like sailors, if you know what I mean. Uh, These were guys that were, they were, I mean, they would have had calloused hands. They were, they were hard-living guys. These were guys that were, were pretty crusty. They were outdoorsmen. Uh, absolutely outdoorsmen, and they 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 weren't always well. even after they began to follow Jesus they weren't always they weren't always perfect I'll just put it that way in Matthew chapter 14 it says and when it was evening his disciples came to him saying this is a desert place and the time is now late and by the way there were 5,000 people listening to Jesus and they came to him and said send the multitude away that they may go to the villages and buy food themselves these were not guys that were necessarily looking to take care of the masses get rid of this crowd They're, they're gonna get they're gonna start getting hungry and you know who they're gonna blame they're gonna blame us they were saying And so these disciples of Jesus these four disciples The core of the disciples said, get rid of this crowd. Send them home. It's not our responsibility. Not exactly hospitable at all. They weren't necessarily sympathetic at all as well. A little child came along in Matthew 18, and they said, get rid of this child. We don't want kids around. Jesus is too important. This is adult business. Kick that kid out of here again not necessarily sympathetic to the needs of others. They weren't even very forgiving. Peter said, Lord, if if someone offends me, if someone offends me, how many times do I have to forgive them? How many times do I have to forgive them? Up to seven? He was shocked by Jesus' answer. No, 70 times seven (laughs) is what Jesus said. Time and again, these disciples that, that Jesus had, had called out of their fishing boats, time and time and time again, they failed. They failed when it came to, uh, to having the, the right way of, of living. They failed when it came to hospitality. They came to, uh, when, it, when it came to humility, they, they had no sense of forgiveness. They were not able to persevere in prayer. When Jesus was getting ready to be a, uh, arrested, Peter, James, and John were with him and he, he called them, he called these three disciples the inner circle and said, please tarry with me, if you will, in prayer. You remember what happened? They fell asleep. They'd been with him for three years. They couldn't stay awake to pray with him. These were tough, crusty, outdoorsmen that failed time and time and time again. And I think one of the things that this teaches us is that if Jesus was willing to call them, there's hope for you and me. If Jesus was able, if, if, if they were able to be put to use in the kingdom of God, and indeed after the resurrection, after the, after, the whole, after the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell upon them, oh, you want to talk about world-changing kinds of ministries. Every single one of them. Jesus can use guys like the disciples. He can use you and me. He can use you and me. There are a number of different ways that they, they fished on the Sea of Galilee. Here's, a, um, here's an ancient picture, I believe. Uh, here's an ancient picture of a dragnet, uh, of a dragnet. Drag and uh, this dragnet, what they would do, they would have a, a net, again, a regular net. You all have seen a net. They would put something on the top of that net, around the edge of that net, typically uh, pieces of cotton or even, uh, even reeds that they had sealed up. And they would have, so it would make the top part of the net float on the water. And then they would tie in pebbles or uh, something heavy into the bottom of that net. And they would take that net and they would just, again, it's called a drag net for a reason, because they would just simply drag the bottom of that lake and they would pull out whatever came out. Again, there were 240 fishing boats. M- a number of them used a dragnet just like this. So that was that was one way of of fishing. I- I've I've done something like that. We called it saining. Uh, we would go and we would sain for, for water dogs. Those were immature newts, um, and they uh, we would use them to, f- to uh, as fishing bait for for catfish. And uh, it's a it's a dirty nasty. Ugh! I hated saying because in that in those nets you would not just get water dogs that you were looking for, which are disgusting enough. Uh, but you would also get small turtles. You would get small little fish. You would get uh, whatever else you would you know bring up. Um, tires and whatever else was in the bottom of that of that lake that you are dragging, you would you would dredge up as well. And so that was one way that they um, that they would fish in the Sea of Galilee. But the, another another way, if I can get my clicker to work, mm, let's uh, okay. There we go. Um, th- another way that they would fish would be line fishing. Now uh, this is a an old, old uh, painting of line fishing in the Egyptian Nile River, and so uh, it's very similar to today, or maybe not today. I don't. I didn't. Th- I don't think they had any open face reels with monofilament line, but they did have cane poles. They would have a string on the end of that pole, and then they would put some sort of lure on the end of that pole, and so the the so with with uh, drag fishing or dragnet fishing you didn't care about where you fished you didn't have any you didn't have any lures or bait or anything you just you just drug up whatever you could and and then you would have to sort out the good fish and the bad fish and you would have to throw back to be honest way more than you than you ever than you ever were able to keep but line fishing is very different line fishing it's all about the bait it's all about the bait uh, line fishing is, again, is primarily what I do. I mean, it's really exclusively what I do is line fishing. Whether, again, whether it's putting out a trot line uh, and you put a piece of bait on that, on that hook, or whether it's um, a, setting out jugs, you put a piece of bait on, on a hook, or whether it is actually with a rod and reel. Uh, what is on the end of that line is really the most important thing. And you are trying to lure the fish to that bait. Again, whether it's live bait or whether it is some sort of lure. And so think about, think about these things when it, comes to, when it comes to what we're talking about today. When it comes to being fishers of men. And so there are some churches that… Uh, that that uh, that look at evangelism or being fishers of men uh, as being uh, a dragnet kind of fishing. You just go out and you just try to try to drag as many people to church as you can. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't ma- I mean, you just drag them all. You drag them all, and you just open the doors and you have all things for all people. And and that's part of the part of the issue. Sometimes is that you get all. I mean, you get all kinds of of, of folks who are um, all kinds of folks who are needing all kinds of things, and they have all different kinds of expectations about a church, uh, and and there there are some churches. I mean, and there, and and I'm not saying that's not valid, certainly by any means. I think that at times that can be valid, and then there are other churches, especially we went as a as the church in the West, we went through a period when we were, when we, it was as if we were using line fishing in order to evangelize. It was all about the bait. It was all about attracting people to church. Do you remember? I mean, I don't, I don't know if you all um, did that here at First Church. I know that early in my ministry, it really was in the late 1990s, it really was a, a period when, when people were trying to attract as many people and so even in my first church, we were singing secular songs during worship. I mean, the thought was in the, in the mid-1990s that if you, could, if you could make people feel comfortable, the more, the more comfortable you could make people feel when they came to church, the more, the more attractive you would be and the more people you could get to church. Well, what we eventually learned was that if, if the church becomes just like the world— um, we may convert people, but we're not going to be converting them to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to be converting them to the world. <laughs> and that's what we found. I mean, we, we were using an attractional model uh, to perform evangelism. And, and what, what we found as well was that uh, people were, were not being attracted to Jesus. People were being drawn by the model. And they were falling in love with the model, not falling necessarily in love with Jesus. And we were doing a really, really, really bad job of discipling people because we wanted, we wanted to make sure that people were entertained. We wanted to make sure that people felt comfortable. We, we had seeker-sensitive worship services. And, and, and there's some validity to that. But what we found from the 1980s really up until around the year 2000 or so, that it was creating incredibly shallow Christians. And across the West, I think that we are reaping what we sowed in the 1980s and the 1990s. We have, across the West, we have churches that are full of Christians that are about that deep because we've used this attractional model. We've used this model like, like they were line fishing, uh, throwing a lure out there and hoping some, something would come along and, and grab onto that lure. And again, people were falling in love with the lures, they weren't falling in love with Jesus. But then, but then there was a there was a final way of fishing, and that was net fishing. It's different. It's different than the other types of fishing. Typically the, the a net was about a 9 foot circle and it Often, I mean, that you could fish from the shoreline. Normally, you had to be up around waist level. You couldn't get any higher than that because you had to be able to throw the net. There was a specific way that you were uh, that you really had to throw that net to be able to get it out there far enough away from where you were so the fish wouldn't be scared away by by your feet or by the boat as well. But it took a lot of skills, and oftentimes it would take a number of years to learn how to be an expert net caster. And so that's the kind of fishing that, that the disciples were doing out in a boat. They were casting out their nets. The important thing, the important thing about casting your nets compared to the other types of fishing, compared to drag net fishing, compared to lure fishing, the important part of this was that they were supposed to go where the fish were. It, it wasn't that they were trying to attract people in and just go into a random place. It wasn't as if they were, they were just dredging up anywhere they could go, but they were, they were going where the fish were. And I think, I think that may be important for us. So there they were, out fishing. Experts in fishing. I mean, they've been fishing all night long and they hadn't caught anything. They hadn't caught anything. And here Jesus came along and he had been he had been teaching for a while. And obviously, these um, Peter and Andrew and James and John, they had heard him teaching. And my guess is they were pretty amazed at his teaching. Otherwise, why in the world would they ever listen? Why in the world would they have ever listened to him? I wouldn't have listened to him. He's not a fisherman. I mean, again, these are, these are hard outdoorsmen. These are fishermen. These are experts in fishing. But he said, cast out. Go on out and, and cast your nets onto the other side of the boat. Well, we've, been, we've been out here all night long. We haven't caught a thing. Okay. And they began to pull in so many fish, they couldn't carry it really in one net. They had to call in the other boat, and there were so many fish, the the two boats together almost began to sink. And then did you notice what what they said, what the Scripture says? And when they had brought in their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Jesus said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. You think you're good at catching fish? Oh, oh man, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And they absolutely immediately left everything. In Matthew's gospel, it, is in, uh, it, it points it out. Immediately, they left their nets behind. Immediately, they left their fishing business, and they went and they followed Jesus because they were intent on becoming fishers of men. Again, I think it's important. I think it's important that when they were casting out their nets, they were going to where the fish were. I think that's important for us to think about in the life of the church. For us to go where the fish are. You know, oftentimes churches get really frustrated that they may have had uh, some time of decline, even a decade and a half of decline. Does that sound familiar to any to any church? And we get really, really frustrated that, that, um, that we don't have more people coming to church. We're in the middle of a, of a city of 1.2 million, a metro area of 1.2 million, a, a Oklahoma City proper of over 650,000. I mean, we, it, it's, it's not as if um, our worship services are bad. It's not as if I'm, I'm, I'm too terribly, you know, um, disappointing as a pastor. It's not that we're not a friendly church. Uh, I wonder, I just wonder if it might be that we need to think about going where the fish are. Not just as a church, but as individuals. Going where the fish are. Going out among the least and the last and the lost. Did you know that there is a lost world outside the four walls of this church? Did you know that there is a world that that there are people that are slipping into eternity moment by moment by moment without knowing the love of God through Jesus Christ? Did you know that? So whether it's a waitress at a at a, west, at a restaurant or, or whether it's a clerk at a store or whether, or whether it's a co-worker or, or whether it's a family member or whether it's a classmate or wh- wh- wherever it is, when you are out and about among the world, you are where the fish are. One of the, one of the mistakes that churches often make is thinking that the pastor, that, that people are converted under the leadership of a pastor, and that absolutely is not right at all. It's not right at all. Sometimes, sometimes as the pastor, I may have the opportunity to be that last to be that last link in the chain. And it may be that, I, that there are times that I have an opportunity to lead someone to Christ, but there are so many more links in that chain, and I happen sometimes to be the very last link in that chain, but there have been person after person after person after person who have shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. And it's not me. It's not the preacher. You see, my role, my role is being the leader of the church. Indeed, my role is to help the church to connect with the community, but I'm only one, and there are a multitude of you. And you live in a different place than I live. I mean, you live in different homes and different neighborhoods than I live. And you work in a different place than I live. And again, there's a multitude of you, and you are among the fish all the time all the time the catch is always miraculous it's always a miracle when a fish is caught especially when you've been fishing all night long and you ain't caught anything Have you ever been there I've asked that family member for the last 30 years to come to church with me, preacher. I'm not asking them anymore. It's always a miracle. An absolute miracle when someone comes to faith. It's a miracle brought about by Jesus Christ himself. is always miraculous but I'll tell you being fishers of men is our primary purpose not just as a church but as individual followers of Jesus Christ it's what we have to be about what we have to be about. It's not about building programs. It's not about getting a church that's larger. It's not about raising funds. And I'll be honest, although this is not popular for a preacher to say today, it's not ultimately about clothing the naked and giving food to the hungry and giving water to the thirsty. It is about offering the saving message of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. That's what we must be about. And when we take off when we take our eyes off of that primary priority, when we take our eyes off of that priority, we are absolutely lost as a church, we are lost as a denomination, and we are lost as the church in the West. And that's what's happened. That's what's happened to the church in the West. A couple years ago I I read a parable I wanted to share with you. On a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut and, and there, was just, there was only one boat, but, but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea and, and with no thought of themselves when... Well, and they went out day and night tirelessly searching for the lost, people on the sea that were lost. Many lives were saved through this wonderful life-saving station, so it became famous. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding area wanted to become associated with that station and, and give of their time and their money and the effort for the support of its work. New boats were bought and new life-saving crews were trained in the little life st- life-saving station that began to grow. And some of the members of the life-saving station, they were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those being saved from the sea. So they, they replaced the emergency cots and the beds and put better furniture in an enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members, and they began to decorate it beautifully and furnished it exquisitely because they, they used it sort of as a club. Fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they, so they hired a, a lifeboat crew to do this work for them. The life-saving motif still prevailed in the club's decorations, and there was even a liturgical lifeboat in the room where the club held its initiations. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast and and the hired crews brought in loads of cold and wet and half drowned people. They were dirty and sick and some of them had, well, they had skin that looked differently than those who were members of that life-saving station. The beautiful new club was considerably messed up, so the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside of the club where the victims of the shipwrecks could be cleaned up before they came in, before they came inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities as being unpleasant and and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. Some members insisted upon life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station, but they were finally voted down. And, and they were told if they wanted to save the lives of various kinds of people that were shipwrecked in those waters, well, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast a little, a little ways, which they did. As the years went by, the new station, the new station experienced the exact same changes that had occurred in the old one. It evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was founded. History continued to repeat itself, and if you visit that coast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along the shoreline. Shipwrecks are frequent in those waters, but most of the people are lost, and they drown. we are called to be on the cruise of those life-saving stations. We have the message of salvation. And again, there are people who are slipping into eternity moment by moment by moment as lost as lost can be. Jesus has called us to come Put down our nets, to put down our playthings, even to put down our very lives and to follow Him that we can be fishers of men. Would you bow with me? Oh Lords, we so often get distracted in the life of the church. Church becomes about programs. Church becomes about ministries. Church becomes about meeting the needs of our members. God, forgive us. Forgive us that we've made our faith about having our own needs met. Forgive us for Replacing our primary priority the top priority in our lives which is the saving of souls forgive us for giving up on our neighbors and co-workers and family members over the years forgive us for not seeing the lost all around us forgive us for not going where the lost are but instead sitting in our comfortable pews in our comfortable homes driving our comfortable cars God you've called us to be fishers of men help us to lay down our nets to lay absolutely everything aside to follow you to be fishers of men, to proclaim the good news, the glad tidings of our Lord, no matter where we go. Come, O oh Lord, we want to be fishers of men. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.